Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris, a network run by music fans for music fans. The goal of this weekly program is to empower our listeners with the information they need to make informed decisions as they follow and vote in the 2020 elections, be it the state primaries, caucuses, or the general election in November. In the Democratic primary race, consolidation seems to be sweeping the nation. With votes still being tallied, Joe Biden won at least four of this Tuesday's six primaries, including the big prize, Michigan, where Bernie Sanders won in 2016 and had been hoping for a strong showing in the industrial Midwest to boost his momentum. Next week's primaries in crucial swing states like Florida and Ohio offer both Biden and Sanders a chance to appeal to the other supporters and to prove themselves as the candidate who can lead a united coalition in this fall's general election. This morning, I spoke with Jake Sherman, senior writer at Politico and co-author of Politico's Playbook. He's also the co-author with Anna Palmer of The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America. I spoke with Jake about Tuesday's results and how widespread concerns about the coronavirus may impact the upcoming primaries. One of the best-sourced reporters in Washington, Jake is also a tremendous music fan so I couldn't let him escape without talking tunes. Hope you enjoy. Jake Sherman, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. Jake, on a normal day after the primary night we had last night, the second Super Tuesday, if you will, you and I would be talking about the state of the race for the Democratic nomination, the amazing comeback that Joe Biden has had over the past two weeks, if you will. I mean, he went from being inevitable to impossible to inevitable once again. But this isn't a normal morning, this Wednesday morning as we sit here, because we have this virus, the coronavirus, which is completely changing American life as we know it. Your beat is the Congress, um, and I'm a musician, and <laughs> we have a situation where, as of now, all the Avid Brothers shows are still on, let me just say that, uh, but I could be out of work for the next three months, uh, possibly. And you are going to be up on Capitol Hill today where uh, senators and, and congressmen are discussing uh, ways to financially soften this incredibly stark situation we find ourselves in. So how are you doing today? Yeah, that's, a, that's quite the introduction. You're in your spot on. I mean, I, I am um, worried. I'm worried not only for the country, obviously. I'm worried for, for more acutely myself <laughs> Because there are still people walking around the Capitol, visitors walking around the Capitol every day. The Capitol gets three million visitors a day. And, and it's necessary, in my view, for me to be up there because the legislative response to this thing, as you can imagine, is going to be it needs to be quite robust. There's two things that need to happen, obviously. Three things. They need to to stop this virus somehow. They need to prepare the, the country, prepare the government to to mitigate the, the virus across the country. Number three is we have an economy that's just getting decimated by this thing. And it obviously uh, the market's been up and down. It's been a roller coaster. That's just one indication. But you have airlines, cruise lines, hotels that are going to be slammed. I mean, as you just mentioned, your shows are still on. I can't I don't know if that's going to be the case for much longer. I have no no visibility into that. But I was just talking with with RJB here and 
in DC and we were discussing, I mean, will summer, will summer concert tours, big summer concert tours go on? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, uh, but Congress is going to the president, president Trump and Nancy Pelosi are going to have to work out some sort of legislative deal to provide billions of dollars to the tune of, uh, it's tough to say at this point, how many billions of dollars, but billions upon billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to these affected industries and to the the government and to drug companies to try to to knock this thing out. It's it's quite scary. So what I've heard uh, as far as what's going down in Congress is financial relief, uh, payroll tax holiday, some help for the cruise line industry, uh, help for the airlines, maybe help for wage workers so they won't be tempted to go to work while they're sick. What have you heard about ways of actually mitigating the virus itself? That's a big question. I mean, well, first of all, the, there's the obvious, right? There's the the practical, don't, you know, be hugging people, kissing people, sneezing into your arm and then rubbing it over somebody else. That's number one. And Congress is trying to to project best, best practices there. But there's a big problem here, which is the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has standards and practices here, right? I mean, they have standards and practices that they follow to make sure that drugs are that both therapies and and um, immunizations and and things like that, flu, the the equivalent of the flu shot, that these things are up to snuff for the public, and usually those things take years. So even if today a drug company were to say we're gonna fu- we have a cure, we have a, a vaccination, uh, that would take time to get to market to test it. Now, listen, in this kind of situation, there is a chance that the government could could try to speed up some of these therapies and these vaccinations. But still, it's it's a high hurdle. It's a very high hurdle. And and you're right. You mentioned some of the other impacts, right? Some of the things that the administration and Congress are going to try to do for the economy. I'm a bit skeptical. I've been publicly skeptical about both the utility and the practical chance for a payroll tax holiday for many reasons. Number one, it won't help people that aren't getting paid to have a payroll tax holiday because they won't be getting a paycheck. Also, it's a lagging indicator. Generally speaking, it's a lagging boost to the economy, according to Republicans and Democrats. Some Democrats are even advocating for why doesn't the government just send out a $3,000 check to every American to help to help kind of make up for this downturn in the economy. Now, that's that's a tough thing to get through a Congress. I think we're kind of far away from that. But basically everything that I could tell is under consideration at this point. So I would be I would just be thinking expansively about what the government can and can't do. And remember, it's an election year. So Donald Trump has special, I would say, um, uh, increased incentive if there wasn't enough incentive anyway, because people are dying. They have, he has even more incentive to get something done. And frankly, I would say from the political angle, and I wrote this this morning, Nancy Pelosi really has a, a tremendous amount of leverage over Donald Trump. Donald Trump and his administration are the face of this pandemic, because that's how, the, that's how things go when you're in the White House. You're, you own everything. Um, and, and I believe that he'll have to he's come hat in hand to her to get something done and will have to continue to have his hat in hand to get something done with Nancy Pelosi. So uh, the Trump administration is the face of this crisis. But will Donald Trump meet face to face with Nancy Pelosi? I mean, no, there's a little bad so. blood, right? Oh, there's a lot of bad blood. Um, uh, I was lucky enough to write a book about the last Congress, the uh, 
that ran from 2017 to 2019, where Nancy Pelosi was the minority leader and Donald Trump didn't have to deal much with her and then had to deal a lot with her um, uh, toward the end of the, the session when he was trying to get his border wall built, when he shut down the government. And then when he was impeached, he he is very in, in conversations that I've had with the president for my book and and other conversations with senior people in the administration. He is he has shifted from having a tremendous amount of respect for Nancy Pelosi to a tre- tremendous amount of disdain for Nancy Pelosi. And and he was once a huge booster of hers before he was in politics when he was a developer. He sees her as unusually strong among her her members in the Congress and and frankly. He has lost some of that respect, but he still, what he always says is, why don't I have anybody like that on my side, somebody who could keep their troops together, who could keep the the institution together like Nancy Pelosi does? He always says things like that, it seems like, where he would say uh, with uh, Jeff Sessions, well, uh, why don't, where's my Roy Cohn? Where's my Roy Cohn? Yeah. Why don't I have... Eric, the, uh, you know, how Eric Holder was for Barack Obama or how Bobby Kennedy was for JFK. Where's, you know, where's mine? Where's mine? The book you mentioned that you co-authored with Anna Palmer is The Hill to Die On. And I would uh, like to recommend that to our listeners, as well as waking up every morning and starting your day with the Politico playbook, which you also co-author with Anna Palmer. So Jake, thank you. You're welcome. You are on Capitol Hill every day. You you talk to uh, Republican congressmen, uh, and you have like you know off the record conversations. I'm sure. Yes. I mean, we always hear throughout the Trump presidency that the Republicans they're they're disappointed. That's not the way they would say it. They don't like the way the president acts, how he tweets, what he says. But they understand who butters their bread, and if they want to get reelected, they need to fall in line behind the president. Has anything changed over the past two weeks that that you can put your finger on with Republicans? No, no, no. I mean, most Republicans go home. This is a dynamic a lot of people don't grasp, which I think is is fascinating. After you know three years, almost four years of Donald Trump in the White House. Republicans go home every week to to districts across America where their base, their voting populace is overwhelmingly supportive of Donald Trump. Yes, there are some districts he's not as popular, but most Republicans, the vast majority of Republicans go home to that dynamic. And um, it's not in their electoral interest. And let's be honest, I mean, uh, what drives a lot of members of Congress is their electoral politics, the getting reelected, maintaining power. It's not always about what's wrong and what's right. And I'm not saying it should or shouldn't be, but this isn't the West Wing, right? I mean, this is reality. These guys want to keep a job. They want to increase their power. They want to be they want to be influential. And the person that's going to make them influential is Donald Trump. And um, so, no, I mean, listen, is there a point at which if we just get into a massive global health pandemic, which we're on the way to at this moment, and Trump does something stupid or something else stupid that they deem stupid. I mean, is there a chance people start speaking out against him? Yes, but speaking out against him doesn't mean they're abandoning him or they're they're going to vote for somebody else or they're going to tell him he shouldn't run for re-election. And my estimation, based on what I know at this point, it just means that they're going to talk out against them, which, by the way, they do. They have in the past and they and they will again. But Overwhelmingly, I'd say the overwhelming um, uh, reality is that 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 
Donald Trump is is has an unusually strong hold over his party, and I just don't at this point see that changing. You know, uh, getting back to the the virus for a second, thinking about this, it seems like in the Wuhan region of China and uh, Hong Kong and South Korea. And now they're doing it in Italy. They've been able to, uh, I know in China, they've been able to begin to reduce the number of new cases by like literally shutting everything down and, and just quarantining everyone. And I wonder if we just didn't today, you know, it's harder with America, right? We have this like freedom of movement and man, don't tell me not to do something because I'll do right. it. I'll do, I'll do it, man. Don't tell me not to go right. there because I'm going to go there. Right. Um, but what, what if we, and this is just me speaking my mind a little bit, what if we just say, hey, everybody, we're going to have a staycation for a month. Everybody just kind of chill at home uh, in your home environs. And uh, I'll, I'll see you in the, in the middle of April. And then- well, maybe- we see- <laughs> We see a lot of universities doing that. I mean, I don't think that's a real that's going to that's realistic kind of broad broadly speaking because I mean, we have an economy that needs to be tended to. Um I think what's causing a lot of anxiety among members of Congress and the public and everybody basically is we don't know what the end game is here. We don't know what's around the corner. We don't know when this is going to end or get better. I mean, listen, in most government standoffs or standoffs involving government requires someone to blink. Now, a virus is just not going to blink. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of a weird way to think about it. But I've been, God, I've been covering Congress and writing about politics since 2009 professionally, so 11 years. And every single situation, you kind of fi- figure out at the end of the day, someone's going to blink. And you hope it's sooner rather than later. As a reporter, your rooting interest is for a good story, but it, for a good story with with uh, some timely ending, basically. Uh, viruses don't, obviously, are not going to listen to you or not going to care what you think. So I, I, I just, that's what I think is causing a lot of anxiety. And I don't think that, I think that the government's going to have to take extreme measures. I don't know what that is, what they look like at this point. So let's turn to the election. And first with you, I want to talk about congressional races, and then we'll get to the presidential race. A big one here in North Carolina is going to be Tom Tillis versus Cal Cunningham for that yeah. that that North Carolina Senate seat. People talk about North Carolina turning from red to blue. It did uh, in 2008 briefly for Barack Obama, um, but you know it's been a pretty staunchly conservative state. How do you uh, uh, perceive Tillis's strengths at this point in the race? Well, let me take a step back and, and get to North Carolina by saying. Um, the biggest story that I think right now in, in congressional politics, which needs to be uh, really dug into and understood, is the suburbs of across the country, including in North Carolina, the suburbs of America just abandoning uh, the Republican Party. Now, take a step even further back. In um, the Republican majorities on Capitol Hill were built on sub- suburbs like the suburbs of Charlotte and the uh, North Carolina's ninth congressional district, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which had a special election um, uh, not too long ago. Gotta, I, lo- I lose track of time, but last year, I believe, right? Last year, yeah, it was last and, year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and this was a race between Dan McCready and Dan Bishop, two Dans. Um, I was down there for this, and this was a district that George Bush won seventy thirty or something like that. Uh, a, a district of basically the affluent suburbs of Charlotte. And some of the outer reaches of the exurbs of Charlotte that are a little bit more red, 
And um, they built the Republican majority on districts like that, well-educated, white, middle class, upper middle class uh, 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 population, working moms, you know, the minivan moms who voted Republican because they cared about safety and they were, they believed Republicans were better on safety and things of that nature. So that those kind of districts are, are now up for grabs for Democrats. And that is why that race in North Carolina is going to be so interesting this fall. Uh, Tom Tillis is a known entity and, and, and North Carolina still is in my estimation, a Republican state, despite some inclinations, some, some, um, um, uh, inklings of voting Democrat. Now, listen, if Joe Biden, as we believe, is the nominee, he will put North Carolina more in play than a Bernie Sanders for Democrats. Uh, and that could hurt Tillis. That could help Cunningham. And and I just think, obviously, it's quite early, so I don't want to I don't want to go too far here. But there's going to be millions and millions spent in that state because, frankly, um, uh, people, Democrats are going to want to turn out voters for Joe Biden. And, and that's going to help Cunningham. But Tillis is a known entity. And I would expect, listen, the, the conventional wisdom is that a Republican like Tom Tillis needs to put space between himself and the president. I, I don't believe that's the reality. You're well, not he, going to win. He's clutched him. He's embraced him yes. uh, wholeheartedly. And that might confuse people, but it shouldn't because you're not going to win a state like North Carolina if Republicans don't turn out. And he needs Republicans to turn out. And those Republicans are going to be, by and large, with Donald Trump. Now, could some of the Republicans on the margin be for Joe Biden? Sure, they could be. But I just think that um, it doesn't surprise me that Tillis is hugging Donald Trump to the extent that he is. Well, Tillis wrote an op-ed against uh, the use of, of, I guess, military funds to build the border wall. And then uh, Pence uh, came and visited him and, and talked him out of it. And he recanted his whole op-ed. And, and ever, yeah. ever since then, he's been, he's been with the president 100%. This, this, this next race may not change the outcome from red to blue. It's interesting, nonetheless, even as a footnote, the Tommy Tuberville endorsement yeah. <laughs> that came yesterday against Jeff Sessions, who was the first senator to support a Trump presidency. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is not surprising to me specifically. I mean, I think Donald uh, Donald Trump's disdain for Jeff Sessions has become well known. He believes Jeff Sessions was not adequately um, protective of him and of his presidency and and things of that nature. Now, Sessions is just completely beating up on Tuberville for moving to Florida. But I mean, listen, Tuberville's up in the polls now, and and uh, this will be kind of a a strange ending to Jeff Sessions' long career in politics. This is what, you know, always surprises me. And this is uh, Bob Costa, who you had on the show, I think, a couple That's episodes right. ago. Uh, he and I talk about this all the time. There's many politicians who make moves that look good at the time that you end up later in life kind of saying, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. And maybe Jeff Sessions believes that because he abandoned a Senate seat that he would have had until he was dead if he wanted to. <laughs> I mean, he would have to be caught, you know, I don't even know doing what to lose that seat. And he took this attorney general job and then his career might end on that. He might never rebound from that. That part of it is stunning to me in the moment. Listen, Donald Trump has massive uh, approval ratings in Alabama, obviously. So his, his endorsement of Tuberville will carry a lot of weight. Yeah. Do you think that, that this a sends a signal to other people about the Trump loyalty uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, 
uh, I think about, and I'm asking two different questions at the same time. I apologize. That's a habit. No, that's okay. I'm going to break at some point. <laughs> but, but I think about Lisa Murkowski, who I guess lost the Republican nomination in her state uh, several years ago and ran write-in candidate. And then Joe Lieberman uh, lost the endorsement of his party and he ran as an independent. I think they, I believe they were both successful in those races. Could you see maybe Sessions doing something like that, running as an independent? The hurdles there are just quite, are just really high. I mean, Murkowski was the son, was the daughter, sorry, of a, a popular governor had been in the Senate and I mean, kind of a unique political sense of political acrobatics there. Joe Lieberman had been in public life, both in the state house and as a popular senator from Connecticut for a long time, who had been drifting away from the Democratic Party. Connecticut, by the way, my home state. So, I mean, I grew up, you know, knowing Joe Lieberman as a public figure, and a lot of people, I believe, did. Now, listen, is it possible? Yes. I don't know the ballot access in the state that well. I don't know the laws in the state that well. Um, but the, the hurdles are just really, really high. But if any, maybe if anybody could pull it off, it's someone like Sessions who enjoyed you know popularity. But listen, the question to me is, and this gets back to your first question, do they associate Jeff Sessions with some sort of plot to overthrow Donald Trump, which is obviously a little bit of a stretch, but do they? And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think that's an open question. And I think that Something like that will determine whether he has a, a kind of a second life here. And none of this changes the fate of Doug Jones? That's a good question. I mean, I don't know what kind of, let's assume Tuberville wins. I mean, Jeff Sessions would beat Doug Jones, I believe. And Republicans and Democrats in D.C. believe that as well. Now, if I don't know if Tuberville has any baggage. Has he said a bunch of crazy things in the past? Has he... Does he have financial improprieties? I'm not raising those as possibilities. I'm not accusing him. I don't know, which is why Republicans generally tend to like vetted candidates, candidates who they know what they're getting into with. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah. Tuberville was a football coach. Is there somebody who's going to come out and say he did this and that to me? I don't know the answer to that. So anyway, we would assume that Doug Jones is somebody who should be embracing the president right? Who should be voting with him once in a while? No, he has cast his lot on being a Democrat, which is admirable in a sense politically, because he believes he's not going to win the nomination. Or he's not going to win the general election without getting Democrats out, without being a Democrat. It's still Alabama where Donald Trump wins by 50 points and four, 60 points sometimes, you know? So I just think in a presidential year, it gets, it just gets much more difficult. And Doug Jones got that seat because of the terrible candidacy of Roy Moore. Oh, yeah. Uh, Plus, though, a lot of help from African-American women who came out in droves for him in Alabama. So what what congressional races should we be keeping our eyes on? Oh, man, there's so many. So there are 31 candidates. seats that Democrats currently hold that the president also won in 2016. So that's a lot of seats. Republicans need 18, 19, something like that, depending on special elections and a variety of other factors. Um, Not a variety, basically just special elections, but Republicans need to win 18 or 19 of them. And these are in districts like, I mean, Oklahoma, uh, South Carolina, uh, places that that are have been solidly Republican in the past. And 
I would have said a couple months ago, this race is going to be on health care. It's going to be on things of that. That's what Democrats are going to fight on. Now, listen, if this coronavirus gets out of control, even further out of control, and we're looking at a uh, full-blown panic, if to the extent we're not looking at that now, I don't know, but does that change the calculus here? Could Democrats credibly say, Donald Trump is out of control, we need Democrats in Congress to keep him in control, and that's why you should stick with us, but... I mean, it's going to be a fascinating election for the House of Representatives. And there are seats in places like Dallas and Houston, Colin Allred in Dallas, um, Lizzie Fletcher in Houston, two districts that were long represented by Republicans, which switched to Democrats. Those are two fascinating ones. Kendra Horn in Oklahoma City, Joe Cunningham in South Carolina and Charleston. These are just seats that have traditionally been represented by Republicans, now represented by Democrats. And where just tons of money is going to be spent. And, and I would say this, Republicans were really hoping, obviously, for a Bernie Sanders candidacy. Republicans have been calling Democrats socialists for 40 years. Now they could have had a socialist on top of the ticket to credibly call Democrats socialists. They are not going to have that now. So it just there's a lot of interesting dynamics at play. Okay, so let's move to the presidential election and yeah. the race for the Democratic nomination, which is kind of the core of what this show uh, kind of is in a lot of ways. But we seem to bury it because there's so many other things going on. Is it over for Bernie Sanders? Looks to be, um, but that's today. And what I'd like to say is based on all available information right now, Joe Biden just romped him last night, uh, beat him across the board in, in, in districts that were not majority African-American, but in districts where African-American voters have huge sway in districts where white voters have huge sway in the South and the North and the Midwest, all over the country. Joe Biden cleaned up and, and not cleaned up by a little bit, cleaned up by a lot. You cannot be a successful nominee for the Democratic Party when you're getting beat among black voters 75-25. You just can't. It's not a, a reasonable thing to think. Now, I've traveled with both of them. I've been surprised it's tough for me to line up the crowds that I see at Bernie Sanders rallies with his underperformance across the board. And I think it's it's just, I mean, I was in Vermont last week at his rally on Super Tuesday where there were 8,000 people. He had 8,000 in Minneapolis the night before. Or in St. Paul, he had 15,000, 13,000 in Boston, on Boston Common earlier that week between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. So you look at those data points, and then you look at how he's performing, and it, they don't compute. Now, a lot of people um, we're, we're, a lot of people are going to say the nomination's been stolen from him, but it hasn't. I mean, the Democratic base, Democratic voters, the ones who decide this, are, are casting their lot with Joe Biden. And, and I think we're seeing some acceptance in the Bernie Sanders universe with that reality, because Bernie Sanders went home to Burlington, Vermont, after he lost lost a bunch of those races on on what we call mini Tuesday and and did not give a speech. Joe Biden uh, rallied in Philadelphia. They both canceled rallies in Ohio. And Joe Biden said, we're going to beat him together. We, we need to come together. We need to beat beat Donald Trump. Now, no one is pushing at this moment, publicly pushing Bernie Sanders out of the race. I think people are going to give him his space to decide. And if he wants to do a debate in Arizona next week, there's a debate on Sunday night in Arizona, see the CNN debate. No crowd, it's going to be, it would be Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders. And maybe he does that, maybe he doesn't. I don't know the answer to that. But it does seem to be heading toward a, a pretty conclusive ending. What is one concession 
that Joe Biden can offer Sanders and his supporters to help bring them in to the tent that will not alienate these Republicans who've jumped over to support Biden and and uh, some of the more moderate Democrats? Well, I, I would say this. I would say Democrats have already given Bernie Sanders a lot, and I'm not saying they shouldn't give him more, but the rules, the party rules have been have been reworked toward, to tilt toward him in, in many ways. Uh, the party is supportive of things like the Green New Deal and, and all sorts of things. But listen, I, I would imagine if you look at what Joe Biden does not have, and it, it's at this moment, it's the support of kind of uh, baseline Democratic based progressives. And I think he would be well served, according to the people I talk to, to to put a progressive as, as vice president. Um, I think that's one concession. I mean, I, I don't know what else you could give him. I mean, that's the thing that I, I, I struggle with because the party is just, they're, they're two competing interests, right? There's the, the idea that um, he's going to have to run a general election. And then there's the idea that he has to bring out progressives to kind of rev up the base, trying to beat Donald Trump. So I mean, he's not going to be for Medicare for all. He's just not going to be for that. I don't know what else there is that he could give to uh, Bernie Sanders supporters. And and the Biden team's thinking is that people are going to be so revved up to beat Donald Trump that they're going to be for Joe Biden, regardless of Bernie Sanders, most likely not being on the ticket and not being the Democratic candidate. Why is Tulsi Gabbard still campaigning? That's a good question. It beats me. Um, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't compute to me. I've known her not well, but since she's been in the House, she's not even really a prominent member of the House of Representatives. Um, so I don't I don't understand the theory of her candidacy. She's out of the debate. She's not registering. I mean, according to me, she's not really a, a factor in the race in any in any in any meaningful way. But she's still getting donations. She's still able to uh, to afford. I don't know why people are donating. I don't know why people are donating to her. To be frank, I mean, I don't know what it is that they don't understand. I mean, she's not in the mix for the nomination. She's not going to be the vice presidential candidate. I cannot explain that. (laughs) I can't even try to explain it. Do you foresee that she may, or have you pondered that she may run like a a Jill Stein campaign or or a you know Green Party or or a third party? She uh, could, but it's not that she's she's not even really like. Is she progressive? I mean, she holds on foreign policy pretty unpopular views or many unpopular views among Democrats. So beats me, I guess, presumably she could, but I just don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know how much money she has on hand, but it costs money to do that. And I just don't know that she, I don't know that she has the wherewithal or the interest in doing that, but it's strange to me. It's very strange to me. Well, Jake, let's talk about music for a minute before I let you go. And, and yes. uh, thank you so much for for all the time you've given me this morning and uh, for making time for our listeners. Uh, you are famously a fish fan. Um, very, very big one. Your, your, um, your back and forth with uh, Katie Turr, that would happen to uh, last year and a couple, for a couple of years past, uh, really... Uh, electrified a lot of fans and really like I, I would just be driving to pick up the kids because she's on tends to be on when when the kids are getting out of school and you know you get in that line to pick up the kids and <laughs> and you would be on and, and before i knew it you guys were were um were were dueling with fish lines and and doing it very well and really creatively was that ever rehearsed or how did that come about Never rehearsed, actually. I mean, when it started, I didn't really know Katie that well. 
but she knew I was a fish fan and I knew vaguely that she liked fish. And uh, she caught me by surprise one day. She was in New York and I was in Washington and she caught me by surprise and I kind of bounced back and, and she is much better at this than I am. And, and it came to a point where I, I was kind of thinking beforehand what I'd throw at her. And, and I will say this though, it got a little bit, people were somewhat critical that, um, you know, we were talking about important things and, and kind of being silly. Although I didn't really see it as being disrespectful to any sort of um, weighty issue that we were talking about. Uh, just kind of a way to have fun. And um, once I found out that that people in the band and around the band kind of liked it, I I figured I had permission to keep going. Although we don't do it as frequently anymore, but Katie and I and my wife and her husband have gone the last couple New Year's Eves to Madison Square Garden to see the Fish New Year's Eve show. And I joined her on set where she does a a monologue where she just ties the year together, which with a bunch of fish. Oh there, yeah. Which that is, is, that is excellent. Yeah, we need to link to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's on YouTube. I'm sure. Um, she's very, 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 very good at it. It's been cool to see that and kind of see that take off. But I mean, I've been seeing fish for a, a long time and seeing live music for a really long time. I mean, I am a humongous, humongous, humongous live music fan. I grew up a humongous live music fan. My father took me to concerts since I was a, a, a little kid. Um, I mean, I was just telling somebody today that I grew up seeing the Almond Brothers at the Beacon every March for many, many, many years. It was wow. always a, a oh part my of my gosh. life. Yeah, it was. It was very cool. And um, I was living in New York during the last. I think. Yeah, I think it was the 30th anniversary when Eric Clapton played with the Almond Brothers at the Beacon, which was just unbelievable. So music is such a massive part of my life. And it's been cool to kind of meld my professional and, and personal life on live television. So you're also a fan of the dead and Huge. obviously the Almond Brothers. So, so it, it, let's talk about some of your favorite Grateful Dead songs. Do you have, do you have like two or three that, that just, no matter what they it just, they just put you in the right place? You know, it's funny. I, yeah, I was recently thinking about this. I, first of all, I walked down the aisle to Ripple. Um, when I got married, um, so that 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 gives you a sense of how much wow. the Grateful Dead are a part of my life. I mean, it's uh, emotional to even talk about the Grateful Dead are such a massive part of my life because I grew up listening to them. They were the wallpaper to my childhood. I mean, I can remember sitting in my dad's uh, Volvo 240DL in the late 1980s, early 1990s, probably early 1990s, listening to Grateful Dead, and they, they've always been around my life. I think of more eras than songs. Sure, I'm sure. A nerd and so, I'm what's your favorite? Much, what's your favorite era? The late 1980s, early 1990s. Yeah. And I don't know why, but I could. No. I have a, a couple of reasons. Okay. Number one, they feel much more contemporary to me, so I could relate to them because I was alive. And right now, um, actually, next week we're going to begin, or I'll at least begin it on Twitter. This is the 30th anniversary of the Spring 1990 tour. Um, which was, in my estimation, one of the greatest Grateful Dead tours ever. Jerry was healthy. Brent Midland, who was the the keyboardist at the time, was very, very on point. And I found yes. the music to be brighter at that point and much more lively than it was in the 80s, which I was a fan of the late 80s. I was not a fan, not as much of a fan as the the mid and early 1980s as I was late 80s. 80, 87, like, I, 87. 87 and on. I mean, 87 was when it, in my estimation, started to turn around. 88, 89, 90. 
Um, and even into 91, 92, there were a lot of bright spots, 93 also. Um, but I got, I'm, I'm a huge eyes, of the world fan. I'm a huge, I'm a huge everything fan. I mean, I, I don't even, there are so few air, so few grateful dead songs that I don't like. And I actually recently, and you'll appreciate this. I saw right after my daughter was born last year, um, late last year, Bob Weir did a, um, NPR tiny desk. Uh, in DC, and I got to see that. And Don Wass was there playing oh, at my yeah. bass, and Jay yeah. Lane on drums. And it was just seeing them in that kind of. And I've seen Bobby a million times. Um, uh, seeing them in that setting was just super cool and, and really, really awesome. So, well, okay, so we're in coronavirus world now, and and uh, tonight, and this is just a hypothetical. Tonight at the Merriweather Post Pavilion, Fish is going to play, and oh, tonight. At the Nationals uh, Stadium, uh, the Dead are going to play. Which show does does Jake go out? Does he go to which show? Does he go to? Does he just stay it's home? A, my wife would probably make me stay home because she she has taken on a new level of anxiety about this, and rightfully so because yeah, we have two absolutely. little kids at home. And by the way, my son's name is Ryder, um, and that is <laughs> at least partially after I know you, Ryder. Um, which he loves and he thinks it's about him at two and a half years old. Little does he know it's not about him. Um, and he'll, he'll realize that as he gets older, I feel like my relationship with the two, the music of those two bands is just is so different in, in so many ways I couldn't pick. And by the way, uh, they would never be in the same market as you would, you could imagine on the same night. So I hope I I would, I I wouldn't have to decide between those two. Thankfully. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's probably the safest answer i could give and the most honest answer i could w- give. well played jake sherman <laughs> okay so who who are the some of the new newest bands that you love are there are there any new bands that you yes love? yes many 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 um i've been really into this band goose i'm not sure if you've listened okay to them i know at all. i know uh yeah rj i know has a Strong connection with those guys. They're good friends of the Osiris family. Here. Yes, yeah, they did something with Tom Marshall in New York recently. I love them, and and um, I've been very much into the bluegrass scene over the last. And you probably know all these guys. I love Fruition. Um, uh, I think they're terrific. I don't know. Love them. you guys. I think Thank I you. love Green Sky. I love mm-hmm. um, uh, String Dusters. I love. Um, God, I I listen to a ton of bluegrass, and I actually think, and I I discussed this with God, I can't remember who it was recently, but I actually think that that corner of the jam band universe of the music universe is the most interesting to me right now, um, just because it's it's so derivative in many ways, in many great ways, um, while also being kind of new and fresh. I love Billy Strings; uh, I think he's terrific. So yeah, I mean that those are those aren't new bands per se, but they're newer than the Grateful Dead. I'm trying, that those are probably the bands that I I listen to the most outside of that, and I I listen to I listen to hip hop, I listen to all sorts of all sorts of stuff. Uh, Who do you like in the in the hip hop world? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mid '90s late '90s hip hop guy. Oh, yeah. I mean I I've not gotten into the new stuff as much as I probably should have. I love Chance the Rapper, but I've not gotten into the new stuff. I still listen to a ton of Notorious B.I.G., Tupac, uh, Jay-Z. Actually, when Jay-Z got back on Spotify, it was like a great day because I could finally download all those albums and listen to them uh, on demand on the on the Metro or on planes and stuff like that. So, I mean, I just listen to so much. I've always have, I mean, 
I'd listen to so much music that if I leave my headphones on my desk at home, I like go home in the middle of the day to get them <laughs> so I can make sure I'm, I always have music playing. Because- I mean, so how, how do you balance that being on Capitol Hill all the time? And you, you seem like you're always running from a TV studio to, yeah, you know, the halls of Congress. What, how, how do you balance like listening to music and, and, uh, and your day and, and all the writing you do, you, you do so much writing and you're, you're a new father, you're a father, you know, and you're a husband and how, yeah. how do you juggle all this? Yeah, it's t- it's not easy. Um, uh, being a f- being a working father or working mother is not easy. <laughs> I I won't get into all the details of that here, but everybody can imagine that, and everybody, sure. many people know that firsthand. Um, uh, I I uh, you know I try to have a heart out at the end of the day. I try and I don't go out really at nights. I try to be home every night to put my kids to sleep, help my wife put our kids to sleep, and. Um, it's tough. It's really tough. I mean, especially with the news climate right now. I'm lucky also to live right behind the NBC studios in DC, which they're actually moving. So I'm not going to live behind it for much longer. So that helps. But um, music is just such a constant part of my being um, and a constant part of my uh, uh, existence on Capitol Hill. And by the way, I'm, we're all, I'm always writing. I'm always, I'm always trying to get into the zone. So I always put on my headphones and, and try to get into the zone as much as I can. And I tried to include this in the afterword to my book, all the bands that I listened to while I was writing my book, but my co-author Anna said, maybe you should lose that. So I had to, I had to get rid of that, but I listened to a ton of music when I was writing my book as well. Well, that that's actually, you tell her for the next book that that's a cool thing to do. Uh, I've got a friend, uh, Jamie Smith, James K. Smith, who's a, who's a Christian philosopher and he's written like 25 books and he does that for every book and it's really cool. Uh, so Definitely. Jake, thank you so much for uh, for doing this today. And please, buddy, keep yourself safe out there. And I hope thank to see you, you this summer. That. Yes, I would love that. Thank you very much. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com.